Uh, well, today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 5. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, uh, we'll be reading all 14 verses of 1 Peter 5 here in a few minutes. Uh, today and next Sunday will be our final Sundays in 1 Peter and this series that uh, we've called Living Hope, which started uh, on Easter Sunday. Uh, much like uh, the last message I preached, I started out intending this to be a one-week message and to end the series today, but as I got into it, I realized it needed to have at least two weeks, so uh, we'll uh, cover this uh, topic today and next week, and uh, so we're wrapping up the series with this two-week uh, message that I've called Keys to Being a Better uh, Christian. And before we look at the text, I want to share what I think it means to be a better Christian, at least some of what I think it means. There's a lot we could say about that, but I want to share at least some of what I think that means. And um, the first thing that I think we have to do toward that is to acknowledge something that I, I think we frequently acknowledge around here, and that is that there are no perfect uh, Christians. Uh, when we become Christians, we enter into a lifetime uh, of a process that we call sanctification, where we hopefully throughout our lives grow in Christ-likeness, but we live with the realization that on this side of the second coming of Jesus, we never become finished products. We remain throughout all of our lives works in progress. And so there are no perfect Christians, but Christians should be growing Christians should be maturing, and over time, we hope that we start to look a little bit more like Jesus. And yet, I think most of us realize that many believers don't look very much like Jesus at all, even though they've been Christians for a long time. And most of us would admit about ourselves that we've not made it nearly as far down the road toward Christ-likeness as we probably should have for the length of time that we've been following Jesus. Amen. <laughs> I think we all probably would uh, affirm that. And so this is an admission that we um, make, that we have work to do to be better Christians. And so I share this to make sure that we understand that this message today is for all of us. We all need to be better Christians. Even if we were able today to identify the most Christ-like person among us, that person would still have a lot of need of becoming a better Christian. So having said all that, what makes a better Christian? I think there are lots of things that we could say about that. I, I certainly can't exhaustively answer that today, I don't think. But here are a few things that I think uh, make a better Christian. A better Christian is one that actually lives by the teachings of Jesus rather than just nodding in agreement to Jesus' teachings and then living however they want to live. A better Christian is one that obeys the two greatest commandments— Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. A better Christian is one whose life is consistent with his or her proclamation. What we say we believe and how we act, those two things are aligned 
with each other. A better Christian is one who has truly entrusted their lives to God and seeks his guidance and direction for all aspects of their lives. A better Christian is one who endures hardship without becoming bitter and angry and who continues in faith no matter what trouble life brings. A better Christian is one who endures to the end. Many, at some point in life, claim the title of Christian for themselves, but many either abandon their faith when the going gets tough, or maybe they don't abandon it altogether. Maybe they still show up and they're, they're around the things of God, but they, they check out. They continue to go through the motions. They come to church. They might even serve to all of us. They might even look like faithful Christians, but their heart is not really in it. A better Christian is one who endures, who doesn't abandon the faith, and who doesn't stay around in appearance only, but continues to walk with Christ, to genuinely walk with Christ throughout the entirety of their lives. And I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said, but I think that's a pretty decent definition uh, of what it means to be a better Christian. And all of us here today should desire that, should desire to be better Christians. And our text today, I think, gives us some insight in how we can be better Christians. I think it gives us some very important keys to being better Christians. And so let's turn our attention there. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 14, I'll read and you follow along as I do. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, Peter writes, a witness of Christ's suffering and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, likely meaning those of you who are newer in the faith, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark, who greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. 
So today we're going to focus on verses 5 through 11. In verses 1 through 4, Peter encourages, uh, offers encouragement to elders, to leaders, to overseers within the church. He urges them to shepherd the flock of God, to care for the flock, to be examples to the flock. And then in the first part of verse 5, Peter encourages younger believers to submit to the leadership of the elders, the leaders, the overseers. And, you know, we could look at that, but what I want to focus on today is starting at the second half of verse 5, where Peter turns his attention from the smaller group of elders and the smaller group of young believers, and he turns his attention to all of you. And so that's where I want to pick up today. From verse 5, the second part, through verse 11, I think that we find five important keys for being better uh, Christians, and that's what I want to highlight here for the next few minutes. We find the first one uh, right in that second part of verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. A key to being a better Christian is to be humble toward one another, to be humble toward other believers. I think we all know what it means to be humble, but let me just share a few things. A humble person is one who is modest about their own importance. A humble person is one who realizes that they do not know everything. They do not have all of the answers. They aren't always right about everything. A humble person is one who recognizes that they can learn from others, that they can benefit from the wisdom of others, that they can benefit from the example of other people. To be humble toward other believers is to recognize that other believers have something of value to offer you. They have wisdom that you need. They may have learned discipline that you lack, that they might be able to help you with. They may have surrendered to God more fully than you have. And, and, and so they have something to offer that you have need of. And, and that is actually the beginning point of having humility toward one another, is recognizing that we need other believers in our life, recognizing that we need to be involved with other believers. Let me say it this way. And all I need is Jesus. I don't need other believers or the church version of Christianity is a false version, number one, but it's a version that lacks humility. It lacks humility. And I would say that it's a version that never results in being a better Christian. Even though the people who take that approach to faith often feel really pleased with themselves. Such an approach usually stems from some frustration with the church. And here's one of the common frustrations that causes people to take that approach to faith. There are too many hypocrites in the church. Or it could be some other frustration. Too much is asked of us in the church. It could be something like, the teaching doesn't really do it for me. 
there are any number of critiques that can be offered that cause people to say, you know, I really don't need other believers. I really don't need the church. Me and Jesus, that's all I need. But if you really think through it, such an approach to faith almost always stems from feelings of superiority. They're all hypocrites. I'm not. All right? Probably the first one I've met, but okay. Uh, It almost always stems from feelings of superiority, which... What is that? Pride. It's pride. I know better. I'm more spiritual than all those people anyway. I'm a better Christian than at least half of the people who go to church. So why do I need to bother with church at all? These are the kind of heart attitudes that that inform a person who takes a me and Jesus approach to faith. And so being humble toward one another starts with the recognition that we need other believers in our lives. It starts with a recognition that we need Christian community, that we need the church even with all of its messiness and even with all of its imperfect people, even with all of its frustrations. We need the church We need each other. We position ourselves to become better Christians when we realize that. When we realize that we really do need each other. When we recognize that we can learn and grow from each other. Even when we recognize this is such an important uh, realization to come to. We need to come to the place where we understand that we can learn and grow even from the examples and the wisdom of people who have a really long way to go themselves. That's an important realization to come to. People do not have to be perfect for us to benefit from their example. They do not have to be perfect for us to benefit from their wisdom. I can say that throughout my Christian life, some of the people who have impacted me the most have been people who, just being honest, had some really significant flaws. Really significant shortcomings. Some real blind spots in their lives. Some of them even struggled with areas of habitual sin. And yet, they were a benefit to my spiritual life, to my spiritual growth. If I had adopted the position that because I knew all the ways they were kind of a mess themselves, that they didn't have anything to contribute to my Christian growth, I would have missed out on the incredible contributions that these people made to my life and to my walk with the Lord. There are people that I can think of within the church, and I don't mean this church in saying this, I just mean the church as a whole, the universal body of Christ. There are, there are people that I can think of within the church that if I'm really honest, 
probably shouldn't be this honest, but if I'm really honest, I don't even like them very much. I just don't. Don't like them that much. But I've been able to recognize that even though they may not make it to the top of my favorite people list, they are nevertheless people with wisdom that I need. They are people who in some very specific ways provide an example that is an encouragement to my faith. And so I think that we become better Christians. Uh, well, I don't think this. This is, this is true. We become better Christians. We practice humility toward each other, recognize our need of each other, and being open to receiving from each other, benefiting from the wisdom and example of other believers, even the ones that have a long way to go themselves. And if you think about it, this is really our only choice. It's our only option. If we were to set a standard that we will only be humble toward believers who have arrived, only be willing to receive from believers who have arrived, then what have we done? We have made it so that there will be no one found who meets our standards. And so what we'll do in that case is we'll adopt a me and Jesus approach to faith that is totally lacking in humility, will leave us without the help of brothers and sisters that we're meant to receive help from, and on top of all of that, that approach to faith is displeasing to Christ who places us in his body when he saves us. It's all throughout the New Testament the body of Christ. We are members of that body. And, and to give a little motivation toward clothing ourselves with humility toward each other, to encourage us uh, toward not only humility toward each other, but the next type of humility we'll look at, here's what Peter reminds us of to, to just help to motivate us just a little bit. He references Proverbs 3.34, which says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I've heard it said, I have not verified this myself, but I've heard it said that that is the only place in Scripture where it says God opposes someone. What, what he opposes them for is pride. Is pride. That's a pretty strong warning that we see in Proverbs 3.34. I don't know about you, but I don't want God opposing me. Can you imagine? All throughout Scripture, we hear so much about how God is for us, and He wants, he wants good things for us, and He loves us, and, and yet here we see in the same Scriptures that when God encounters pride, He opposes it. He stands against it. It's a strong warning. When we refuse to clothe ourselves with humility toward each other, when we fail to recognize the, that we need imperfect people who make up the church of Jesus Christ, Peter says we do these things because of pride, and he wants to remind us that God opposes the proud. But thankfully, he also reminds us that God gives grace 
to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And so Peter calls us first to be uh, practicing humility toward each other. And then in verse 6, we find the next kind of humility that we're called to. Here's what we find in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. I cannot imagine a more important key to becoming a better Christian than humbling ourselves before God. And the way Peter describes it is that we're to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. The mighty hand of God is a common phrase in the Old Testament. Moses told the people in Exodus 13, 19 that it was with his mighty hand that God brought them out of Egypt. And that phrase shows up frequently uh, referencing God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And here's the idea behind it. The idea is that God's hand rests on his people, guiding the destiny of his people if they will simply, humbly, and faithfully submit to him and accept his guidance. And so the question that we have to answer is, will we be people who humbly and faithfully accept God's guidance? Or will we be like many people who claim the title Christian are, will we be people who refuse to humbly and faithfully accept God's guidance? Instead, we keep control of the reins of our lives for ourselves, follow only our own guidance, all the while giving lip service to having turned over control to God, giving lip service to living submitted to the guidance of God. Let it be true of us that we're people who don't just call ourselves Christians, but we're people who actually live in submission to Christ, actually humbling ourselves before God so that we can be guided by His mighty hand. I like to think of it this way. And I think some of you will be able to uh, uh, connect with this. You, you will probably have done this very same thing. There have been many times in my kids' lives, when they were younger, I might, might qualify, where we would be in a crowded area, you know, maybe an amusement park or a, a shopping mall or just somewhere where there are lots of people. And I wanted to make sure that we all got through the crowd together. And so here's how I would do it. I would place my mighty hand on my child's back or their shoulder. Usually where I would place it would be on the back of their neck. (laughs) And with my mighty hand... I would guide them through the chaotic mass of people to our destination. I'd like to show you how I did this. Could I get, could I get a volunteer? Austin, would you like to show the people how this worked? <laughs> <laughs> 
Austin, why don't you come on up here? Actually, I'll come down there. Now, pretend this was seven or eight years ago, all right? Not now, not now. The neck was about here, all right? Now the neck is here. Uh, but here's how, here's how we would do it. Now, this worked when you were young, okay. so just, just go with it, okay. all right? Illustration in front of lots of people want it to work, okay. all, right. all right? So uh, So if I wanted Austin to go left, I would... I would guide him to the left. If I wanted him to stop, I, I would pull back. If I wanted him to start, if I wanted him to go faster, I'd push him faster. If I wanted him to turn to the right, I'd turn to the right. Go back, left now. Right. <laughs> left. I didn't, I didn't shout out these commands. I don't know why I'm doing that now. It was, just the, it was just the mighty hand that did it. That's all I needed was the mighty, mighty hand. And so we would just do this. And we would get through the crowd safely to where we were going. And it was all just from the hand. Thank you, Austin. Uh, it was all just from the hand on the back of the neck. Now, even at a young age, the kids had a choice to make. You know, kids can do things to get out from under the mighty hand. You know, they can dip and duck and run away from it. But in most cases, they did not. They accepted the guidance. And just with the hand on their back... And in spite of, for whatever reason, I was saying left, right, like we were in the military, it was, it was just from the control of the hand that you would guide them to wherever you needed to go. God sees what we can't see. Now, that illustration broke down because in a crowd, Austin could now see what I can't see. <laughs> but... but when they were younger, I could see things they could not see. And God sees what we can't see. God knows the destination that he is trying to get us to. And if we will just submit to him, then we get his mighty hand leading us and guiding us. And this is the mark of a true Christian. And this is a key to being a better Christian. More and more we walk in humility before God. More and more we submit to the guidance of his mighty hand. We humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And as we do, we get his guidance. And what a mighty hand it is. Peter says that if we humble ourselves before God, he will lift us up in due time. God lifts us up in due time. He brings us into the purpose for which he created us. And ultimately, God will bring us to the place of our eternal purpose of sharing 
in his victory over sin and death and the grave and living forever with him. But before that happens, those who humble themselves under God's mighty hand are those who fulfill the assignment, the purpose that God has for them in the here and now. And there's no greater example of this, I don't think, in the Bible, other than Jesus himself, there's no greater example of this than Joseph. You may be familiar with the story of Joseph from the Old Testament. Joseph was a man who submitted himself under God's mighty hand, and because he did, he fulfilled the purpose that God had for him. If you're not familiar with the story, you can read about it roughly in about Genesis 35 through 50, but I'll just hit the highlights here. Joseph was sold into Egyptian slavery by people who should have loved him more than anyone else in the world. He was sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers. He became the servant of a man named Potiphar. And he served Potiphar excellently. So much so that Potiphar put him in charge of his entire house. But Potiphar's wife liked Joseph. And Potiphar's wife put the moves on Joseph. And in an example of how sometimes doing right brings a lot of trouble to your life, Joseph did right, refused her advances, and she lied. She lied about him. Potiphar threw him into prison. He got to prison. People that he met were so impressed by him that they said, you know what, when I get out of here myself, I'm going to try to get you out too. Because I think I know people on the outside that would like to benefit from what a great person you are. But then they'd get released and they'd forget about Joseph. But through all of that and more, Joseph was a man who humbled himself under God's mighty hand, and he remained faithful to God no matter the circumstances of his life, no matter being sold into slavery, no matter being a prisoner, no matter being lied about. He remained humble before God. And eventually, the mighty hand of God lifted Joseph out of prison and elevated him to the second highest ranking position in all of Egypt. He was second only to Pharaoh himself. And when he was elevated to that position, God used Joseph to prepare Egypt for a famine that was going to come upon the world. And when that famine did come, those brothers who sold him into slavery were starving. And they knew that Egypt had food. And so they went to Egypt to try to get some food. And it's a fascinating story that you should read if you haven't. You should read again if you have. But through a series of interesting events, Joseph's brothers end up standing before him, the second in command of all of Egypt, standing before him asking for food. These men who had sold their brother into slavery are now at his mercy 
And he can, with simply a word, have them executed or send them away to starve. That's the power that he had over these men who had dealt so unjustly with him. But I want you to hear what Joseph said to these men who had sold him into slavery, these men who had caused him so many lonely nights, these men who had subjected him to so many injustices. And in these words, you find a man who has submitted himself to God's mighty hand. Here's what he said to his brothers trembling in front of him. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. What? (laughs) How do you say that? I don't know if you know this, but from from, uh, being sold into slavery to being elevated to the second in charge of Egypt was 15 years. 15 years of difficulty, 15 years of heartache, 15 years of lonely nights, 15 years of enduring injustice. And he says to these men, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Why? Because it was to save lives, get this, that God sent me ahead of you. No, Joseph, God didn't do that. Your brothers sold you into slavery. Joseph did not see it that way. Joseph saw it as God sending him to Egypt. That's incredible that he could see it that way. He goes on, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Yeah, I I know what happened in the natural was that you treated me horribly and you sold me into slavery, but, but that's just what the eye could see. What was really happening is that God used you to send me to Egypt so that once I got to Egypt, I would be able to save you. It's amazing. How could Joseph say that to men who had done such great injustice to him? He could say it because through every circumstance in life, Joseph had remained humble before God, trusting God in every circumstance of his life and being faithful in every circumstance. And because Joseph continued to be humble, because Joseph continued to trust God, the mighty hand of God was on Joseph. And not only was God's mighty hand on Joseph, but Joseph knew and believed that God's hand was on him. And so he trusted that whatever was happening, no matter how difficult, that God was with him and that God was guiding him and that God was working his will in his life. 
What an incredible thing to be able to be sold into slavery, lied about, forgotten in prison, and continue to believe God's hand is on me. God's hand is on me. To continue to be submitted to God. William Barclay writes of this, Christians never resent the experiences of life and never rebel against them. Now, he's saying what, what's true if we're living as better Christians. This isn't always true of us. But this is what would be true if we were better Christians. Christians never resent the experiences of life and never rebel against them. Why? Because they know that the mighty hand of God is in control of their lives and he has a destiny for them. Here's how to be a better Christian. Never forget that you serve a mighty God. Remember that God's hand is mighty. Humble yourself under his hand because you know that with his mighty hand on your life, you can face anything that life brings. And you know that as long as you remain humble under God's mighty hand, he will be with you and he will guide you to where he ultimately wants you to be. Here's how we can be better Christians. Have confidence in what is true. God and God alone controls your destiny as long as you humble yourself under his mighty hand. I've told this story before, so those of you who have heard it perhaps multiple times, I apologize to you, but not, not everybody has. I saw this play out in my own life in uh, 2001, I had thought that God had called me to be a pastor for a number of years, uh, really for most of my adult life, from about the time I was probably 18 or 19, I thought I was called to be a pastor, but in 2001, I was um, 32 years old and beginning to feel like I was barking up the wrong tree. Uh, in this, this feeling that I was supposed to be a pastor. Over the preceding four years, I had been at Vineyard Columbus and had had some doors of opportunity open up to me. I graduated from VLI. Uh, I was a preaching mentor at VLI. The director of the school uh, had indicated that he would be willing to help me, uh, to give me recommendations if I found churches that might be interested in me as a pastor or an assistant pastor. And so even though I felt like it was getting to be a pretty long time, there were, there were some things that were happening. There were some doors that looked like they were opening. And in the middle of all of that, Michelle and I felt like God was calling us to go and join the vineyard that was being planted in Pickerington, Eastside Vineyard. And while that doesn't sound like that would be that big a deal or create much of a risk to what I felt like God wanted to do in my life, if, if you know the whole story, it actually did. 
Because the pastor of that church was John Moriarty, a man that I love dearly. But at that time, a man that for some reason, I had just never been able to click with. It just hadn't happened. He had been the evangelism pastor at Vineyard Columbus. And I was a VLI student who was assigned to work for him during the Sunday services. And even though my name was always on a sheet of paper telling John who I was and what I was supposed to be doing, John could never remember me, ever. I can remember one time being behind the equivalent of the information center at Vineyard Columbus. I had been there for probably at least eight weeks. And John, my direct supervisor, whose name was right above mine on the paper. John comes up to me and he kind of looks at me like this. Were you wanting to help today? Like, like uh, he just talked to me like I'm like five. I hope John doesn't watch this video because <laughs> he he probably does not remember it this way. But I'm telling you, this is this is pretty much how it happened. He he looked at me like I was about five years old. Were you wanting to help today? Yes, yes. I walked into church, and I thought, where can I just insert myself that I haven't been asked to serve? That's, that's what I want to do today. And so, and so it had just never clicked with John. It had just never clicked. And now he's the pastor of this church plant that we feel called to go to. And I thought, God, I don't know. I mean, finally, it looks like some doors might be opening, and I'm going to go over here and come under the ministry of this guy who can't even remember who I am? I don't know. That might be. And Michelle and I actually had this conversation. Said this, this might be the end of the road on the, uh, the hope of becoming a pastor. It, it really might be. And I can remember where I was when I said to her, you know what? If it is, it is. If if this means that I don't get where I hope to be, I'll lead small groups, I'll lead a ministry, I'll do whatever is put before me to do, even if I never get where I ultimately feel like God has called me to go. The first time we walked into Eastside Vineyard, John recognized us somehow against all odds. <laughs> He recognized us, and he, he did one of these, I'm probably going to exaggerate a little bit here, but he did one of these things where he came up and he put his arm around me like we were buddies, and I think he might have even done something like, hey, how you doing, Captain? I think that part's an embellishment. I don't think he actually said that, but that's what felt like was happening. And I'm usually, usually, a pretty nice guy. But in that moment, you know how Popeye said, I, what was it, I've, I've, I've taken all I can take and I can't take no more? I had been forgotten and not known too many times. And he's trying to act like he knows me. And I very indelicately said, you have no idea who I am. That was our start. 
That was our start. He is the person who God used to give me my first opportunity at vocational pastoring. He's become one of my closest friends. And he's the person who very graciously sent about 17% of his church up the road 10 miles to start another church. I thought the path may be ending. But, and hopefully you guys know I use myself as a negative example enough that you can deal with me using myself as a positive example. But in this case, I chose to submit to what I thought God was telling us to do, even though I couldn't see how it led to where I hoped to go. But God, who controls our destiny, he saw that what looked like a dead end to me was actually the way he was going to bring me into what he had called me to do. And this is what God does for us if we will recognize his mighty hand and if we will submit, humble ourselves before him. So next week, we're going to look at the uh, next three keys on your outline to being a better Christian. But what we've seen today is really important. These are extremely important keys toward being better Christians. Be humble toward each other. Recognize that we really do need each other in all of our imperfections. And then humble yourself under God's mighty hand, willingly submitting to him, knowing that submission to him brings his guidance. And his guidance will lead us into fulfilling his purpose and ultimately, it'll lead us to sharing his eternal victory. And so my appeal to all of us today is let's embrace humility. And if we do, we'll become better Christians. Let's stand. 